All right, let's grab our seats. We're going to go to our third lesson. And my goal is to get us out of here by 12. So. And let me, uh, I was just, just talking to um, one of you that, that pointed out. So Aquinas had five ways, five arguments. Four of them were, were just variations of the cosmological argument. So one was the argument from motion, one was the argument from cause and effect, and I can't remember how the other two went. But he was just saying, it's establishing this idea from, from cause. Okay, and then his fifth was the teleo- teleological argument with the arrow. That other stuff that I was getting into were just developments on Aquinas. So Aquinas uh, in the 13th century was not talking about the fine-tuning of the gravitational constant. Okay, so that, that's just kind of how we've built on the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, which predates, like I said, it, it goes all the way back to Aristotle. So, um, yeah, but, but I was kind of jumping all over history, so sorry. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so last lesson, again, just repetition is key to memory. I'm not going to write it, though. Presuppositionalism is our foundation. We just talked about the classical arguments for the existence of God. But again, that doesn't mean that it's Jesus. And so now we're trying to move to uh, evidences that not only does God exist, but he is the Trinitarian God that has revealed himself in Scripture. Because these classical arguments can convince somebody that there was a creator God, but they could be a deist. Okay, Um, Those... Some of the best articulations of the cosmological argument have come from Muslims, okay? So um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be saved through those classical arguments. But I do think somebody was helpfully just asking, the Bible assumes God, right? What's Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God did these things. It doesn't tell us where God came from. It doesn't really tell us what God's like. We understand what God is like as we read the rest of the Bible. But if you're engaging with somebody and you're trying to share with them and they've clearly got a different definition of God than you do, then that's right to kind of stop and let's talk about who this God is like because I can't jump into the Bible and talk about the God as he's revealed himself in Jesus without having some of these these categories in place. But that's where we're trying to drive. So that's why I say this is the progression. We are trying to move to articulating that Jesus is God, that the triune God is the God that we are talking about. And the primary way that we do this is the Bible. Okay? That is the foundational way. Even going back to that idea of Reformed epistemology, that in Reformed theology, God is the one that sovereignly acts to convert someone, to enlighten their heart and give them knowledge. But God always does that through the word. Okay? So it is the word illumined by the spirit. That's why we have to go out and we have to say the gospel. Because if we're not saying the word of God, then, then there's nothing there for the spirit to work with. Okay? And I'm not saying that in a way that God is limited, but I'm saying that in a way that that's how God has ordained that this works. It's through the word of God. And so that is what we are trying to do is we're engaging in apologetics. It's great to have these other conversations. It's great to talk about worldview. It's great to talk about the creation of the universe. But the thing that you should always have in your mind is you are always trying to get to the Bible. 
you are always trying to get to whether the Bible's spoken as you are sharing with them, maybe not verbatim, maybe not chapter and verse, but things that are articulated in the Bible, okay? The Spirit can work with that, even if, even if you misquote it a little bit, right? The Spirit has worked through a lot worse to, to save people. Um, so you're trying to articulate that, but one of the best things you should be trying to do is get into a Bible study with that person, right? You say, look, all of this that I'm talking about, this is coming from the Bible. Have you ever read the Bible? Um, so, so one of the things that we're going to talk about as we're talking about evidentialism has to just be that foundation of the Bible. Um, the Bible, this book that we have, the 66 books that are culminated together, this really is the Word of God. When I am uh, when I'm, I'm explaining this to people that are not really familiar with what we mean when we say this is the Word of God, I like to use an example of um, a text message on your phone. Okay, so say you've got your phone and the the text message pops up, and it and it says, you know, hey, I love you, on the text message. Um, am I excited about that because the words are on my phone? No, I'm excited about that because of who it came from, which is my wife. Okay? I am excited because it is through these words, this message conveyed in writing, that I am engaging in a relationship with this other person that I want to have a relationship with. The Bible is God's text message. Okay? The Bible is how this other person that wants to communicate with us and engage with us and tell us about himself and tell us about ourselves, the Bible is how... God does that. God has sovereignly worked through this process of compiling these words together in such a way that he actively speaks to us through this, okay? So one of the reasons that's important, and I bring that up to people when I'm trying to share with them, is imagine, you know, you've got, you've got your phone, and it's got the little, red, the little red thing that tells you that you've missed a message, okay? Are you just going to let that sit there with that little red thing? You know, doesn't that bug you? To have the, I just turned all those little red things off because they bothered me so much. They made me nervous, you know, because I'm kind of like type A and I want, I want them all to go away. Okay, so just imagine, here is this message from God. And it's got 66 little things right there saying, read me. Read, I want to talk to you. Okay, and so we should value this for what that is. But then I also say that because I think this has an apologetic quality in itself. There have been... A number of times as I'm, I'm talking to people, and especially, you know, sometimes, sometimes, like I said, the goal of apologetics is to keep the conversation going. But sometimes people will use these objections to the faith as a stall tactic, okay? And they'll always have one more. They'll always have one more argument. They'll always just kind of take the conversation all the way around. And so sometimes it's just wise, as we're being gentle and respectful, we're just listening to the Holy Spirit and say, hey, let's, you know what, let's just cut through all of that. Let's look at this. Okay? And I have challenged people sometimes. I say, this is a divine book. This is a supernatural book. This book has come together through a supernatural process, and this book actively works right now supernaturally. And so you can read this and have a spiritual experience. You can read this and have an encounter with God that engages with that census divinitatis and lets you know that this is real. And there's no other book like this. I had a friend that was Buddhist, and he and I were talking, and we were talking about, um, you know, if you've never talked to a Buddhist, they're really a lot of fun because they think about things really differently than we do. And so we were having a really fun conversation, talking about different stuff, and I just said, man, you need to read the book of Ecclesiastes. 
as he was bringing stuff up. Which, you know, who recommends the book of Ecclesiastes to a non-believer? But that was what, that was what the Spirit put on my heart. I mean, as we're talking, this is all stuff that, that Solomon was talking about. Okay, so I was like, dude, go, will you do that? You've never read the Bible. Will you just go home? You know, you can, I wrote it out. This is how you spell Ecclesiastes. I texted it to him. I texted him a link on the website to where he could just read Bible Gateway and read Ecclesiastes. It's like, will you just go home and read Ecclesiastes and tell me what you think? And that was an apologetic. Okay, I was letting the Bible do that work. And we got back together and, and he said, if this is just what one book of the Bible says, I want to read all of it. He said, there's got to be a God. There's got to be a God. Just reading that one book. Okay, um, and so the Bible in itself is is the Word of God engaging with that sensibility that we have, and I think you can trust that. Okay, it's not us; it's it's God. And so the sooner you can try and just get to, hey, let's read some of this, or you're trying to share that with them, that's where the that's where the power is, right? So I'm not trying to say with these other things that the power is we're trying to get to the revealed Word of God, but I will also say that the Bible, beyond just a supernatural book. Okay, and we can we can rely on that. Um, it is also a historical book. So this book is, in many ways, just a record of eyewitness accounts of the things that God has done in history. This is a record of people that had experiences with God, and they wrote down what actually happened when they had these experiences with God. Whether whether things that God did, miracles, things that God said, or most of all. Jesus Christ and the, and the work of Jesus Christ. So imagine this, okay? Um, the mountains are right out that door. We all walk out from these lessons today, and on top of the mountain, there is a cloud and fire and loud trumpets, and it seems like all of Albuquerque is shaking, okay? And we, and we walk up to the Sandias, and we, you know, we only get so close because this is crazy what's happening. And then we hear God talking from the top of the Sandia Mountains. And God tells us what he is like. And God gives us his commandments. He says, this is the way that you should live to honor me and to be in harmony with one another and with the world. This is, this is who I am. It's revelation. Okay, imagine that. Like, get that in your head, okay? We walk out and the, fire, the mountains are on fire and God is talking from the top of the mountains. Would that be convincing? Do you think people in Albuquerque would convert if God was on top of the mountain speaking from a cloud? And giving us his commandments? Yeah, that would be very convincing. That happened. That actually happened. And that should ju be just as convincing. That it happened. We didn't have to see it. Okay, as convincing as that would be for us to see it with our own eyes. If somebody, if we got video feed of that happening in the Sinai Peninsula where it actually happened right now, we would still be convinced by that. Okay, we would be convinced by that testimony of that happening. Okay, well, it didn't happen right now. It happened 3,000 years ago, but it still happened. How do we know that it happened? Because Moses saw it and he wrote it down as an eyewitness. Okay, so then the question really is, can we trust Moses? Can we trust what Moses wrote down? Because if we can trust Moses and Moses says God talked from the top of a mountain, told us what, the, what he is like and what his commandments are, that means something. But if we can't trust Moses, then, then he's nuts, and, we, and it means nothing for us. And we're still on our own trying to figure it out. But the Bible is a historical account. Okay? And, and this is not, that is not, uh, if that logic, if you're not tracking with that logic, okay? I have never seen Donald Trump with my own eyes. But I know he exists, because people won't shut up about him. 
okay? Other people that have seen Donald Trump with their own eyes write about him all the time. They say, Donald Trump did this and Donald Trump did that, okay? Um, and I take, their wit- I take their witness. I take their testimony, okay? They also have cameras, but you know what I'm saying, okay? That we all the time are trusting other people's testimony and assuming that things are true. This is no different, okay? So it really just comes down to, can we trust the testimony that's recorded in this book? Are they lying? Or are they misinformed? Or are they not saying something literally that we think that they're saying literally? That's really the question, okay? And we're not, I'm not going to answer that question. Um, we did a seminar in 2004. Ryan did a seminar that was about that. Can we trust the Bible? Um, I think it's called The Reliability of the Bible. So go listen to that. Um, it's on our website. You can dig that up. I will also say there's a great book right out there called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. Um, fantastic book. It's, it's really well written. That would be a book that you could sit down with somebody that's saying, all of this stuff that you're saying is crap. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. All of this stuff that you're saying is, but that's what they think. All of this stuff that you're saying, this is, this is bunk. You cannot, you cannot believe this. Um, and you say, great, well, let's read this book about why can I trust this or not trust this. There's lots of common reasons that people say that they can't trust this, right? That um, it's full of contradictions or... Um, you know, it's been, it's been translated over and over again, or, um, you know, what are, I wrote some of these down. Um, oh, another one, people like to say that, like, books were left out, so we don't have, like, the whole story and, and things like that. That book covers all of those questions, so that would be a really good book if, if people are saying that, because, again, it all comes down to the credibility. If what these people are saying is trustworthy, then we have to deal with the thing that they're saying happened. If God really did talk from a mountain, that's an evidence for the existence of God, isn't it? Okay, on and on these go. And let me just say, I will say, because we're not going to go into this, but if somebody comes to you and they are kind of stopping you at the gate, like you can't trust the Bible um, because it's full of contradictions or because books were left out or blah, blah, blah. I will say 99% of the time they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay, so this goes back to that confidence thing. They're going to say that really confidently. You can't trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions. Why do they think that? Because they saw the little Time magazine, you know, at Easter time, and they just read the cover. Can't trust the Bible. And they think, you can't. It's full of contradictions. So if somebody says you can't trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions. You know the best thing that you can say? Can you show me one? Right? Let's, can, can we look down? Can we sit down and look at that? Okay. Um, if you think that, that uh, this is inaccurate somehow, can we open it up and read it and talk about how it's inaccurate. You've done two things. One, you've put, put the ball in their court. And two, you've gotten in a Bible study with a non-believer, which is the goal, right? So let me just say, as somebody that has studied this stuff uh, a lot, you can trust the Bible. Okay, these are credible eyewitnesses. This has not been translated over and over again. I had to learn Greek and Hebrew to make sure it wasn't translated over and over again. Okay, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, there, there were not books left out. There are not contradictions. We can trust the Bible. And so what these guys are saying happened, really happened, and that's evidence. That's evidence that God is real. It's the best evidence. They saw God. God spoke to them. Okay. So the most significant piece of evidence that we have from the Bible, which is what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay. Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is the, if, if there's no other piece of evidence that we're dealing with, that is the one that is not only stated in the Bible, but I'm going to explain to you is historically verifiable outside of the Bible, that Jesus really was raised from the dead. 
And if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then everything that we're saying is true and that you should believe in Jesus. Okay? So that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. There, uh, before we get into this, I'll recommend a book to you. Um, this book, I read this book really early in, uh, in my faith, and it had a huge impact on me. It was called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And some people just got nervous that I said N.T. Wright. I do not agree with everything that N.T. Wright has said. He's, got, he's, not, uh, he's not in our tradition, okay? So he's got a different theological tradition than we do. So obviously there are things with, that, with which I disagree, especially what he says about certain things related to justification. There are things even in this book that I don't agree with entirely. But this is a great book, okay, where he gets into, um, one, what is the nature of the resurrection? What do we mean when we say resurrection? And then he does just a slam dunk, slam dunk job of briefly explaining uh, reasons that we should have a lot of confidence historically that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, so um, fantastic book, had a big influence on me. Uh, I read it not too long ago. It's still awesome. It's called Surprised by Hope. Surprised by Hope. But again, we're only reading that for the stuff about the resurrections. Okay, so there's a big asterisk next to, next to that. But... Um, this, like I said, this is kind of the, really even the Bible presents the resurrection of Jesus as the crux of our faith. So if you've got a Bible, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians near the back of the Bible. And, and remember our gospel story, okay? Remember uh, the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they describe what happened with the life and the acts of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, um, he lived a perfect, sinless life, he um, was arrested, he was tried, he was crucified, he was, he was killed on a cross, okay, so he was hung up on a cross, he died on the cross, they took him off of the cross after he died, the, the soldiers, they put him in a tomb. Okay, and it even tells us specifically which tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee. They put him in Joseph's tomb, they put the rock in front of the tomb, and all of the disciples went home very, very sad, because this was their Lord, this was their Messiah, this was the one that they thought was going to come and win victory for them, and he died. So their whole movement is over. And they went home, it was on a Friday, so they had to get home quickly, because at sunset on Friday, the Sabbath began, they were all observant Jews, and so they... Um, they went into their homes. They observed the Sabbath on Sunday. Some of the disciples went to the tomb because they didn't have time to embalm his body and prepare him for burial properly. So on Sunday, they went back to the tomb with their embalming materials, and they found the tomb was empty. And the stone was rolled away. First um, Corinthians 15.1, the Apostle Paul says this, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. 
And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Then picking up in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, hear that? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So do you hear what Paul is saying there? Okay. If it is not true that Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we are wrong. We are wrong. And our faith is futile. What we're doing here is futile, okay, is, is pointless. Um, we need to go look somewhere else, okay? Our sins are not forgiven. We have no hope, and we are to be pitied, okay? If you could, you can't, but if you could come to me and with 100% certainty say, Chase, look, I hate to break it to you, but here are the bones of Jesus Christ. He is still dead, okay? If you could, if you could really do that, which you can't, but if you really could do that, I would quit being a Christian. I mean that with all seriousness. I would, because everything that we've believed is a lie. Okay? That's what Paul is saying. So if you can prove to me that Jesus is not raised from the dead, I'm going somewhere else. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not here because there are no answers for me if Jesus is still dead. Okay? But Jesus is not still dead. And everything hinges on that. If Jesus is not still dead, that's the greatest evidence for the existence of God. If Jesus is not still dead, that is the greatest, exi- the, the greatest evidence of the gospel that we preach, that we have all sinned, we have broken the law of the moral lawgiver, and we have deserved death, and Jesus died in our place. Okay? And if Jesus is not raised, then that means that that death was not sufficient. That means that our sins are not forgiven. If Jesus was raised, then that means he was able to die for all of the sins that we all committed. Okay, it means the check cleared. There was money left in the account if he could come back. If Jesus was raised, it's an evidence that God is the Lord of creation because he had the power to raise a body. Okay? If Jesus is raised, then that means we have hope because if God can raise one person from the dead, he can raise all of us from the dead. And that's our hope. That's the hope of the Christian faith is that we would be like Jesus raised from the dead. That's why Paul says he was the first fruits. He was the first one of many, of a whole harvest, of all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, that even though we die, we will live. And we will live in real bodies, just like Jesus was. But do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying the Christian faith is falsifiable. And that's important. That's an important thing about the Bible. Okay, If you read other religious texts, they are non-falsifiable. Okay, They are um, so abstract or so mythological that they cannot be proven or disproven. And so a a factual statement that cannot be disproven 
is not a very good factual statement. It's not really a factual statement. It's more of a, an opinion, okay? Um, and so you can, uh, you can take it or leave it, okay? But the Bible never presents things in such a way where it's like, this is mythological. It's always presented with, this is historical. This happened, and you have to either believe that it happened or not believe that it happened. You have to either accept this as credible or not credible. And, and so that's one thing that's always convinced me, too. Like, if you read Buddhist texts or even if you read the Quran, the Quran is really written in a way that it's not, it's not presenting this historical um, argumentation, this historical testimony that forces a decision one way or another. It's a little bit more philosophical and abstract. The Bible just isn't. It's in places like that. But overall, it's forcing a truth claim. So everything comes down to, why was that tomb empty? Okay, Because that's what all four of the, the gospel witnesses say. They came to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And then Paul says, they go on to say, they saw Jesus alive in the flesh, talking to them. And then they saw Jesus go up to heaven. So what do we do with the empty tomb? Here are six arguments from non-Christians about the empty tomb. Okay, so this is what they say. This is why they say that the tomb was empty. One, they say that Jesus didn't really die. Okay, so he was hung on the cross. He was taken down. They put him in the tomb, and he wasn't really dead. And so he got up in his own um, strength and and walked out of the tomb. Um, I actually was talking to a guy that believed this, okay? And he believed it because his dad had been in a car accident and had been declared legally dead and then was resuscitated, okay? Um, there's a lot wrong with that. One, his dad was resuscitated by a team of doctors working in an emergency room. Jesus was laid in a tomb and the door is closed, right? Um, more importantly, how many crucifixions had the Romans committed at this time, okay? They knew how to kill people. They knew when somebody was dead. And if you were to read, we're not going to do it for time, but in John 19, John goes into the details and he kind of establishes, maybe because this argument was already arising, no, they killed Jesus. I saw they, they, they were going to break his legs so that he would die in time for sunset, but he was already dead. And they took a spear and they stuck it up in his side and the blood came out because he was dead. And he says, I am testifying to you that I saw this and it was true. He was really dead. He was dead, dead. And it would be presuming a lot to say that the Romans screwed up and put him alive into the tomb. So that's one argument. Um, second argument, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And, it, and the one they went to was empty. Okay? This is, I mean, really, this is because you have to explain why they said that the tomb was empty. Oh, they were confused. They went to the wrong tomb. Well, again, the Bible tells us exactly what tomb that it went to. Okay? And then, um, more importantly, coming out of this experience that they had of the empty tomb, not only the empty tomb, but then the, the, um, their, their, their experience with the resurrected Jesus, they go around and start proclaiming to everybody that Jesus is raised from the dead. What's the easiest argument to disprove that a guy was raised from the dead? Show him the body. So if they were just confused and went to the wrong tomb, Pilate could have been like, guys, I'm sorry. This, it was marked wrong. He's actually in this one. Here's his body. And then their whole argument would have fallen apart. Okay? So even if they had been confused, that would have been easily resolved. Number three, common argument, the body was stolen. Okay, and this is actually, Matthew 28 says that this is the first story that was ever articulated about the resurrection of Jesus, that the Jews started spreading a rumor that his disciples came and stole the body. 
and then have started up this fantastic story about Jesus being raised from the dead. That's actually an important detail because even the Jews have to do something with the empty tomb. So that's an evidence that the tomb was really empty, okay? And that they didn't have a body because, again, what's the easiest way to disprove this? Produce the body. They couldn't, and so they made up a story that the disciples stole the body and have hidden it somewhere. Well, that's hard to believe because the gospel accounts tell us that when they buried the body, they set a Roman guard in front of the, the tomb, like several Roman soldiers. And the, remember, the disciples were fishermen, okay? And the Romans are not saying, oh, we were overpowered by all the disciples, okay? They're not saying that. That would have been embarrassing, right? They would, they would not have uh, lost to a bunch of fishermen, okay? The Romans would not have let the body be stolen. Number four, the argument for uh, the empty tomb was that the resurrection is some kind of a conspiracy. The, resurre the resurrection accounts is some kind of um, shared conspiracy, okay? Which, again, falls apart because you could produce the body. There's a lot of other reasons that we're going to get into, but that's one of the things that people just, un I think, un um, or dishonestly say, oh, they were just making it up without engaging with some of these other factors. Um, number five says that this account of the resurrection is actually legendary, or um, mythologizing, okay? And so the early Christians um, were so affected by or affected by Jesus's teaching that they started, after his death, coming up with some of these stories about, um, about the resurrection. And, and implied in that is it means that they didn't actually think he was raised from the dead, but they had kind of developed this myth around Jesus that somehow involved metaphorically his resurrection from the dead. Um, that is, uh, we can't get into all of the reasons why that's not very convincing. The main reason is if you actually read the New Testament, it is noticeably lacking any mythologizing language. Okay, so like even if you read what Paul was saying, okay, Paul was not saying in abstract, philosophic, metaphoric terms that Jesus was raised from the dead. He said, Jesus was raised from the dead, and Peter saw him, and then the 12, and then these 500 other people who are still alive. You can go ask them, okay? That's not mythological language. That's jurisdictional language, right? This is, we have eyewitnesses. You can go ask these guys, because this matters that this actually happens in time and space, and is not some legendary idea. So, that's another objection. Lastly... Um, and this is surprisingly the, the more common view when you're reading like New Testament scholars today, non-Christian and Christian New Testament scholars, is that the disciples had a shared hallucination of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not kidding. This is, this is the, one of the more common views. And they say that um, they, they will appeal to situations where like someone has lost a loved one and then they'll be convinced that they saw him again, you know, and that, that great trauma and grief can bring about uh, certain kinds of visions or hallucinations like that that aren't, you know, actually real. Um, but they will say, yeah, all, you know, what did Paul say? 500 people. All 500 people that swore that they saw Jesus, they were having a shared hallucination of the resurrected Jesus. And that's, that's the best they got. Okay? Um, and again, you think I'm exaggerating. That is very, that is very common. Um, and and ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't even know, that doesn't, absurd. What's more, I mean, if you have, where a view like that is coming from is kind of an anti-supernaturalist view. Like, 
well, well, we know that miracles don't happen, so we must have to explain this with the miracle of 500 people having a shared hallucination, you know. Um, and, and so, again, this is kind of why that goes back to, well, if there is a creator God, the creator God can do whatever he wants to, including raising Jesus from the dead. And if that's true, then what's more plausible, that 500 people had a shared hallucination or that Jesus was raised from the dead, right? But the reason that all of these, and especially that last one, is so important that there are these, these arguments presented for why the tomb was empty is, like I said, everybody has to answer that question. Why was the tomb empty? And more importantly, why did all of the disciples agree that it was empty? Why were they all convinced, not only that it was empty, but that Jesus was actually raised from the dead? So this is a quote from Bart Ehrman. Um, and if you don't know who Bart Ehrman is, he is like, I mean, he hates the church. He is very open about how wrong he thinks we all are. And he is a very devoted Greek scholar. And I mean, he, and he does not agree with what we say. And he wrote this. What is certain is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had come back to life in the body and that this was a body that had real bodily characteristics. It could be seen and touched and it had a voice that could be heard. Okay, So he does not believe what we believe at all, but he's like, there is no question that all of the earliest disciples believed, were convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. He thinks they were wrong too, but they were convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, so why? And, and it, again, you have some of those objections, most, like I said, prominently, that they were just nuts. They had lost their mind, but they were not making this up, okay, at least as far as they thought what they were saying was true. So there's two options. He wasn't raised from the dead, or he was. And I want to spend the rest of our time going through evidence that he was raised from the dead. And this is evidence that goes beyond just because the disciples said so, okay? Although that's good enough for me. Um, but ten, I'm going to give you ten reasons for the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And these are, like I said, when I am prone to doubt, often things that I come back to and think of that I find very, very convincing. And all I'm trying to do here is say, if we've got kind of a scale of what's more plausible, that the disciples were making this up or that they, were, um, they had stolen the body or they were all hallucinating or that Jesus was raised from the dead, all I'm trying to do is tip that scale just the littlest bit. And if it's tipped even just the littlest bit, then you have to, you have to go here. And you have to believe this. And then all those other things about the hope of the resurrection are true. So, reason number one. In the history of Palestine at this time, there had been several other so-called messiahs, both before and after Jesus. So other Jewish leaders that had tried to lead revolts against, uh, against the Roman powers and that they thought that they were the Christ and their followers thought that they were the Christ. Okay, remember the Jews had been looking for the Christ for a long time. They had been waiting for the Christ. And so there had been a number of other candidates to be the Christ and they all died. And what happened when they died? All the Jews moved on. Okay, so then they moved on and they were waiting for the next Messiah. And actually, if you talk to Jews today that rejected, you know, Jesus, they're still waiting for the Messiah. And they still think, you know, there was, uh, what was that guy's um, uh, Schneerson, Rabbi Schneerson was like in the 90s. He was a really famous uh, Orthodox Jew. And his followers thought he was the Christ. And then he died. And then you know what they said? We think he's going to come back from the dead. 
They said that. Okay, it was like in the 90s. Like, he's going to come back from the dead because he's really the Christ. You know what he didn't do? Come back from the dead. Uh, gosh. Uh, Re- they called him Rebbe. R-E-B-B-E. I think it was Menachem Schneerson. I'm probably messing that up. Is that right, Menachem Schneerson? Um, the Lubavacher Rebbe. He was up in Brooklyn. He's, anyway, he's an inter- interesting dude. Not the Christ. Um, but all of that to say, this is, this is not an uncommon thing for people to stand up and say that they were Christ. And then they were killed by the Romans. And then all of their followers just went away. And then they attached to the next guy. Except for Jesus. His disciples stuck with that idea. Because okay? even that, that guy, that Lubavacher Rebbe guy, okay, they're, not, they're not saying that he's the Christ anymore. It's been too long. It's been like 20 years. So they've, they've even stopped holding on to that. Now they're waiting for the next, the next rabbi, but not Jesus' disciples. Okay? So they, there was something that happened that convinced them that he was the Christ even though he died. That would be the resurrection. Reason number two. The first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. We say, well, why is that a good evidence? Well, if you're making up a story, you want to get the absolute best, most credible witnesses that you can to back up your story. But the Christians, in their early testimony, based this all on very what the culture considered unreliable witnesses, which was women. Okay, But they said, nope, these women, these sisters, they saw it first, and that's part of the story. And so we're going to say that. And so all of that does is it lends a level of credibility to the account. Okay, If they were just trying to make it up, they would have said, then Pilate, Jesus appeared to Pilate, and Pilate bowed down before the Lord and confessed that he was the Christ. But they said, no, these, you know, these women, they were the ones that saw it first, and then they told Peter, and they told these, these other guys. And so that gives uh, a level of credibility. They're just telling the story like it happens. They're not making it up. Third, uh, the disciples went around and preached Christ's resurrection where? In the place where it happened. Okay? So again, if it was disprovable by just presenting the body, if it was disprovable through some of these other means, they would have disproved it. But they're going around Jerusalem and saying, no, that guy that was just killed, we've seen him alive. Okay? And it wasn't proven false. They didn't, they didn't have that argument to stop them. That also proves that they were not making it up. Because if you're going to try and make something up, you're going to say, you're going to go somewhere far away where it's not verifiable. But they're going right in the heart of the place where it happened. Number four, the gospel accounts, okay, at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written well within the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Okay? And that's why I think when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he's saying there are this many people that are still alive. Why is he saying that? You can fact check this. You can go and ask people if, they, if this is so, if this really happened. The gospel testimonies were written, one, so close in proximity that the argument that, the, that this legendary tradition would have developed around Jesus, there's not enough time for that to have happened. Okay, What they're writing is just, just as it happened, but it happened within the lifetime of the people that saw it. And then in that same vein, number five, the gospel accounts, as they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, all have striking marks of legitimacy. So uh, there's a guy named Greenleaf that was a professor of law. Um, I don't I don't have all the details, but he was a lawyer, and he had and he was the one that kind of wrote the literally wrote the book on what makes evidence good evidence or bad evidence. And then he went and he studied the gospel accounts, and he says, you know, if this was in a courtroom, all of this evidence would be accepted as good evidence. 
There's no sign of collaboration. There's no sign of conspiracy. There's actually lots of instances where they're sharing details in such a way that would convince me that this is credible. Okay, the fact that they're sharing slightly different details, the fact that um, they, they emphasize different things. He said, if, they were, if these were witnesses standing in the court of law and they were giving me the story, this would all be admissible evidence. This is all credible testimony as it's written. Number six, the apostles were in complete doctrinal agreement about the resurrection. Okay, so if you read the New Testament, you can see that argue, they're arguing about lots of doctrine. What do we do with circumcision? What do we do with, you know, taking the gospel to, to Gentiles? What do we do, even earlier after the New Testament was written, what do we do with the nature of Jesus and God, uh, or God, Jesus being both God and man? How does that exactly fit together? There was a lot of um, discussion and disagreement about that. They were never in disagreement about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. That was constant across the whole board. They were all in agreement that Jesus was raised from the dead in a physical body. Number seven, this is a really interesting proof. Jesus' tomb was never venerated as a shrine. So this was very common. Jesus even talks about this in the Gospels, that the Jews would venerate the shrines of prophets and great people, and so they would turn it into a kind of pilgrimage site, okay? And it would be um, the, the body in the place where that person was buried would become significant. Where's the tomb of Jesus venerated? It never happened. Why? Because the tomb was empty. They don't know where it was. Now, today, after the medieval period, they picked a, they picked a cave and they said, we think this is the cave that Jesus was buried in, okay? But, but at the time, there was not the veneration of Jesus's tomb. Number eight, what there was the veneration of was Sunday, and I don't know why this is like one of the most convincing things for me, okay? Who were all of the followers of Jesus when it happened? They were all Jews, okay? And for a thousand years, the Jews set apart Saturday as the Sabbath. And, that, and like if you broke that, you were stoned, okay? Their whole life for a thousand years had Saturday as the day. And then right around 30 AD, this group of Jews started venerating Sunday. Why? Because something happened on Sunday. Jesus was raised from the dead. And that, that's, I don't know why. That just is very convincing to me. That they were so, they, they knew the resurrection happened so much that they would just abandon this cultural tradition and jump into this new tradition because there was a greater truth communicated by Christ being raised on the first day of the week. Number nine. This is where it starts to get into the, the really convincing stuff. Number nine. All of the Christians, all of the Christians were willing to accept that Jesus was Lord. They confessed that Jesus was Lord. This Messiah that had died on a cross. This leader of their movement, this teacher, this one that was going to bring them victory, whose life ended in apparent failure, they all went around confessing was the Lord of the universe. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. Okay? They would not have been convinced. They would not have even mythologized that he was the Lord. Because he died a cursed death on a tree. And if that's where it ended, like I said, they would have gone off. But they didn't. They all confessed together, Jesus is Lord. And that got them in big trouble. Okay? They confessed that Jesus was Lord over Caesar. So here's a whole group of people. Now, this is number 10. A whole group of people that were willing to die for their claim. 
This, is, this has historically been the most convincing argument for the resurrection of Jesus. I say historically, like in the first few centuries, people were converted to Christianity because all of the Christians were willing to die for this. Okay? So we even see in, in the New Testament that, uh, that the disciples were being murdered because they were confessing that Jesus was the Christ. They were being killed by the Jews because what they were saying was blasphemous to the Jews. And then they were being killed by the Romans because what they were saying was against Caesar. They were confessing that there was another king, Caesar. And so to be a Christian was very, very dangerous. And yet all of these apostles that saw Jesus raised from the dead say, I can't say anything else. Okay? I thought you guys know who Chuck Colson is? Yeah, um, he was he was special counsel to President Nixon, and he was like, wasn't he in Watergate? Like, was he like in the in the hotel? Yeah, and then went to jail, right? And he used to be uh, like a bad dude, like he was Nixon's fixer, and um, and then when he was in jail, he converted to Christianity, and then had like an amazing ministry after that, like a prison ministry after that, and wrote a lot. But he said this, and I love this. He wrote, "I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me." How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. Okay. So they knew something happened. And they told us that something happened. They told us that Jesus was raised from the dead. We've got every reason to trust that testimony. And then they kept that, that truth consistently for 40 years. And every one of them died. Every one of them was martyred. Uh, except for John, who was boiled in acid. And then died at like 90-something. Okay. So... If this was a lie, you're gonna go. You're gonna get boiled in acid for a lie. You're gonna get fed to lions for a lie, even for a hallucination. No, they knew without a doubt that Jesus was was raised from the dead, and so do I. I know that, and I hope that you know that. And these are good evidences. This is a good place. There have been good books written about this. That that book, Why Trust the Bible, was written about that. I've suggested some others. Study that, okay? If somebody, you know, cosmological argument, teleological argument, whatever, you can just come to them and say, hey, this all comes down to whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. So let's go there. And there have been so many men and women won to the faith through this one argument. If that tomb was empty because Jesus walked out of it, then this changes everything. And it means the gospel is true. And you need to believe it. And you can believe it. And if you believe it, you have hope. That is the evidence of our faith, like Paul says. And then it's more than that, okay? It's more than that. That I know that that's true because of this evidence. I know that this is true because of God's word. And I know that that's true because God has convinced me of that by his Holy Spirit. And so... That's where we leave it. I pray that that's true. As you guys go out, I pray that you are proclaiming this message, but I pray more that God would act because he's the one that convinces us of these things. So let me say a prayer, and then you are dismissed, but we can still ask questions, but I want to honor your time. God, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you for the certainty that we have that he was raised from the dead. 
And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has struggled with that certainty, Lord, would you convince them of that? Because, because we confess at the end of the day, you change hearts. You are the one that has power to convince people, not me, not our arguments, Lord. But you have asked us to be prepared. And so I pray that we would be prepared. And I pray what that means is that we would just be quicker to tell people the gospel. And that we would be better at articulating it and better at spending time investigating all of the nooks and crannies of what you've done in this creation. And, and God, I pray that you would move through our church, that you would save people, that you would draw people to yourself and convince them of the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you did raise one man from the dead. You raised your son, and he is Lord, and you will raise all of us that have put our trust in him to your glory forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. So like I said, you guys are dismissed, but if, if we want to do questions... We can. Yeah. The, the miracles. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those, so those are, those are arguments coming out of the Bible, right, that those witnesses are, are making. But yeah, they're absolutely evidence is worth, worth believing too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, really, so she's asking about the Immaculate Conception, and, and like I said, there's just broadly an, an anti-supernaturalist spirit, right? So that's just as impossible as Mount Sinai and as the resurrection, and, and you know, and that's a good thing. I'm glad that you mentioned that, because there's a lot of other stuff. It's interesting that when people talk, they want to go to, like, other miracles and talk about how that's impossible, you know, like the Red Sea is impossible, it's impossible, you know, that all of these people could have wandered in the wilderness and be fed for that long time, you know, these other things. And, and that's kind of their objection. And I'm like, we believe a man was raised from the dead and, like, is still alive, you know? So if that's weird to you, I've got some weirder stuff for you. Um, yeah, read on, right. And so if, if, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then all of this other stuff is possible to you, including the, the – and we wouldn't call it just, the, you know, I'm not singling you out, but we wouldn't actually call it the Immaculate Conception uh, that's right. Yeah, that's your that's your background showing a little bit, because uh, because that means that Mary was sinless in her conception, uh, which which we do not believe that she was, but she was uh, the incarnation of Mary with the divine person of Jesus Christ. We absolutely believe was a miracle, and it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, and and um, it's so she so she was asking like the the right logical response to the cosmological argument as you're saying okay nothing in the universe can happen without a cause but you're saying God can happen without a cause right um, and so that's kind of why I was saying because that is you could call that a kind of um, a kind of question begging, right? That you're you're assuming something is true, and then 
basing this conclusion off of that, right? Um, like, basically, you could say God exists and caused everything, so everything has a cause, therefore God exists, right? And, and so that's logically inconsistent, except so is other cosmological arguments against the existence of God, right? So, like, the, the multiverse is this eternal existence of matter that led to, okay, so you're saying that didn't have a cause. So one way or another, we're all appealing to something outside of our logical proofs, that did not have a cause. Does that make sense? Sort of. It doesn't relate to me either. I'm just talking. But uh, no, I mean it does. So, so all of these again, not one of these is a slam dunk, right? Not one of these. I mean, but really, like most, yeah. There's there's a lot more arguments that we make that that are kind of based on certain kinds of, not I wouldn't say fallacies, but but assuming certain necessary truths. Everybody assumes certain necessary truths that we wouldn't all agree are necessary truths. So that's a whole other aspect. And I guess this gets into logical reasoning and, and things like that. But you're absolutely right. Like somebody could come back and say, well, then what caused God? And you say, well, then what caused this? You know, it's, we're, we're doing the same thing. Just God has told us that he did it. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, or, or there is, in fact, an infinite regression. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last question. Uh, Dave. Dave. So, yeah, I do. So, um, and that's and that's kind of what I was getting with when there's some debate about which branch of this is really to go with. And a lot of people in that first lesson with presuppositionalism and reformed epistemology would say exactly what you just said. And theologically, I completely agree, right? And, I, and so I hope nobody got that, that I was trying to say, you know, that that people are one by us putting the, the authority on them to reasonably, reasonably conclude through this because they can't. Their minds are darkened. And so we're asking God to, um, to act on them. But, again, I think that there's evidence in the New Testament and throughout church history that this has been a consistent practice of appealing. Because of, basically, if that's all we're doing, then, um, then we're just going to be reciting Bible verses over and over again. And I just think this is a way of dialoguing 
about what the Bible says. And so it's, so I'm, I'm not trying to cut out from underneath the authority of the scriptures in this. I'm just saying that we can have broader conversations about these things. And, you know, what you're saying is there's that noetic effect of the fall, that a fallen person cannot reasonably think through these things. Again, I agree with that, but I think that we can appeal to their reason. So I don't think they can completely reason these things, but I think that the, the fall has not completely erased the image of God in us. It has not completely broken our reasonableness. And so that one of the ways that God saves people is by the truthfulness, the reasonableness of what we believe being made apparent to them. And, and so it's still, I, I agree with you. I may just be articulating it a little differently. And I'm not trying to like, the burden is, is not on them to either accept or not accept that. Like, that's what I'm saying. They're still wrong. Okay? What we're saying is true. We're just trying to... But Paul uses words... He doesn't just say, I preached. He also says, I persuaded. I attempted to convince. I, I engaged in a defense. And so Paul is in this, in this much broader practice than that. You know, so, so to go back, I just don't want to fall into the trap that... You know, like Cornelius Van Til one time just was, was engaged in a debate and he was presenting to this and he goes... And he kind of just stopped and he goes, not that any of you can understand any of this because your minds are darkened. And until God gives you the enlightenment of faith, uh, there's really no point in me saying this, you know. And 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 then he went on to continue, continue explaining himself, you know. So theologically, that's totally true. But I just think that part of the way that God works is through this extended conversation, these reasonable arguments, these things like that. So um, yeah. So I I want to say that we're exactly on the same page. I might just be talking about some of these other these other things. And again, there's those other functions. I'm not just talking about the evangelistic functions of apologetics like the cosmological argument helps me in my faith you know so thinking and doing philosophy and reasoning and these broader things then just what god has revealed in the scriptures is of benefit to me personally um and that's kind of again going to anselm he's like i have faith and i just want to grow that faith and understanding these other these other things is that good yeah we can come argue about that later i'd love to argue with you about that all right thank you guys so much for being here we'll call that a day Thank you.